0: Feeling overwhelmed and frustrated by the obstacles you face? Well, you're not alone. The Resiliency Ninja is here to help. Alison Graham is a speaker, author, and business coach. But most importantly, she's on a mission to give you tools to succeed in times when it feels like life sucks. Now, here's your host, Allison Graham.
1: Welcome back to the Resiliency Ninja podcast. I'm your host, Allison Graham. And of course, our goal here is to uncover the stories and insights behind the success story. If you love what you hear today, please subscribe, give us a star rating. And uh, especially if there's something in this conversation that will, uh, you know somebody in your life needs to hear, please share it with them. That's the greatest compliment you can give me and my guests and uh, serve the people in your life. Now, today's guest is actually, we're going to be talking about something that I have personally really struggled with. So I'm going to be as vulnerable as our guest is in this upcoming uh, show. I've got on the line here, Jody Barrett. Jody, we're, welcome. Thank you. I'm so excited to be here. So you have written a book called Mindful is the New Skinny. (laughs) Tell us about the book.
2: Yes. Well, Mindful is the New Skinny, the name kind of came from that skinny is the old way of thinking. It is an external kind of uh, judgmental, perfectionistic way of being, whereas mindfulness, mindfulness is much more compassionate, internal. Um, It helps you just go through life with a softer, more accepting, allowing approach, if that makes sense. It absolutely makes sense. So skinny is like that metaphor for perfection. We all want that perfect body, the perfect family, the perfect spouse. And people think that everybody else has this perfect life. And as we strive for perfection, what ends up happening is it robs us of our joy. So while we're on this, you know, treadmill of trying to be better, best, and, and more, we're not enough, we're not doing enough, we're not, you know, working as hard, we're not skinny enough, it's just this treadmill, we never really meet our goals, and if we do meet our goals, we never can appreciate meeting the goals, and, you know, you say to a friend, oh, you look great, you lost so much weight, yeah, but I need to lose more. It's just never enough. So mindfulness is being okay with what's here in the moment without judgment. It's you're appreciating, you have gratitude for what you already are. It doesn't mean that you don't have, you know, goals and places you want to go, but it's, it's you're okay with what is. And it's a much more peaceful attitude to go through life with.
1: And- uh, when I actually, and I've gotten to that point, and I talk a lot about this with people, I'm like, you know what? We've got to love today. We've got to love ourselves today in a way that is non-judgmental. And yet, there's the balance, as you've just mentioned, of striving for better, striving to be healthier, striving to do the thing that's in the in the sights, your goal, your dream, your your fantasy, whatever it is, and yet being really kind today that you haven't reached there. Like, how do you balance that push and the pull or just the push in the present?
2: Right. Well, I think we are so programmed in our culture and in our society to be more and striving that that part is kind of hardwired in our brains. And we're always trying to go and get more. And if we can just have self compassion, it's the compassion for ourselves. You know, I always say, we're doing the best we can because we would do more if we could because we're always programmed to want, you know, like I said, more. So we're doing the best we can. We need to have compassion for ourselves. And when we can have compassion, we're human, we're doing our best, then we are able to move forward with our goals. But if we're so preoccupied in our minds with, you know, I'm not enough, I'm not enough, I'm not enough, it leads to a whole host of negative behaviors, such as eating or drinking or taking a pill, because we don't want to feel, we don't want, we don't want to feel those uncomfortable feelings. And we punish ourselves with food and with other substances that actually do the opposite, you know, stop us from meeting our goals. So it's really about the self-compassion so what is that all
1: about? You know, this whole weight loss thing. <laughs> why, why do we set a goal? And I'm saying we, and I can say me. Uh, I'm you know, with you, you. Don't worry. <laughs> you set a goal and you know what you need to eat. And then it, you know, I don't know. Next thing you know, you're out at a party and somebody's put these things in front of you and you don't even like them and yet you eat them. Right. What, what is that about?
2: Well again we have this hardwired programming and food is something that we cannot stay away from right if you're a, a substance abuser you can sort of avoid that you can't really avoid food it's always there and it's always a struggle and it's you know we we put such a charge onto our food this is a good food this is a bad I'm being good I'm being bad with tons of judgments and there's such a charge when it's just food so We've gotten so far away from our internal cues, knowing when we're hungry and knowing when we're full, we're just kind of playing with the food and playing with our calories. We're counting the calories We're, you know, not eating breakfast and lunch and pigging out in the afternoon because we're so hungry that we, we can't help it, right? It's like, I was great for breakfast. I mean, this is what I hear with my clients all the time. It was really good. I didn't eat breakfast, you know, oh, great. And I had a very little lunch. And by three o'clock, it's like you're searching for anything you could find in your refrigerator because we have this biological need to survive. And we'll just eat anything when our blood sugar drops. And then once we break our diets, quote, we're just like, now we'll eat anything and we'll just keep going because I'll start again tomorrow. You know, we already ruined it. And it's just this cycle. So the way I. Teach people you know, through mindful eating, it, which is a much more sustainable approach. Listening to your hunger cues, eating when you're hungry, stopping when you're full, pausing, paying attention to what you're eating. Do I want to eat this? Am I hungry? Would I eat an apple right now? It's really just eating consciously, not sitting in front of the TV, eating a whole bag of chips and wondering where they all went. It's taking a little portion of something and just paying attention to your food, slowing down. You know, I always do a mindful eating exercise with clients and groups because, you know, if you take a, a raisin or a piece of chocolate or some kind of food and you look at it and you smell it and you, you describe it and you put it in your mouth and you actually taste the flavors And you'll notice it's a whole different eating experience. And if we could slow down and actually taste our food, we might not feel the need to overeat and binge.
1: And now you used to be someone who ate junk food. Like this is not an... You know, because oh, sometimes yeah. they're the people who are teaching you how to eat well and like they've never experienced popcorn at the cinema. <laughs> like right. they don't want the butter. <laughs> yes, <laughs> they no. never
2: had that. Yeah. Love junk oh, food. uh yes. I was a junk food eater growing up. I was a very picky eater. I joke around my nickname was junk food Jody. That's what my family called me. And I love Doritos and Sprite and I was so picky. I mean, I would eat hamburger. I mean, that was it. I would never eat anything good. I was ordering off the kid's menu way longer than I should have been. And veal parmesan was like my only adult meal, you know, well into my, you know, 20s or whatever. So I got it. And then what happened to me was I had a big wake-up call in my mid-30s. I got diagnosed with celiac disease, which is an autoimmune condition where the body cannot handle any wheat or gluten and no one knew this was back in 2003 no one knew what gluten was at the time you know you'd go to a restaurant they've never heard of it it wasn't labeled on packages it was a very dark <laughs> time for me because i had to change my entire way of eating and i had no idea what i could even eat you know and i had to give up pizza and bagels and all my favorite foods so that was a wake up call i ended up going to the institute for integrative nutrition where i learned and i and i went there because i started counseling people on gluten free diets but it wasn't really about health it was just about eat, the, eat this gluten free pasta versus this pasta and this is the best brownies and you know and then i realized i'm really doing them a disservice because i know nothing about nutrition and health so i decided to go back to school iin i learned about nutrition and realized the huge impact it has on our body. I mean, I knew this. People would always say, you need to you know, eat healthy, blah, 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 you know? <laughs> and, but when I went to the school, it, I found like it was the key to life, this good nutrition, and it was almost like a secret. I mean, now it's much more well-known about organic foods and whole foods, but I was like a processed food eater. I mean, I lived on processed foods. And it's amazing when you change your diet how much healthier and more energy and better mood and all of that stuff. So it really does give you that feedback, which is unbelievable. But I kind of took it a step further because when I was in that institute, I was learning about a state of mind, which I felt was so important. So the mind and the body are so connected, this whole mind-body connection. I knew nothing about any of this. It was such an eye-opening experience. And I learned about spirituality. I never really had any spirituality growing up. So it was an incredible thing. I knew I wanted to learn more about it. And I started studying mindfulness. Mindful eating was a part of it. But I started getting so excited about all of the stress reduction techniques and this attitude that you bring to life, you know, that there's so much more than us right there's something so much bigger than ourselves and i was starting to let go of things and and stop being so controlling and you know just this whole transformation was incredible and i wanted to share it with people and that's really why i wrote the book
1: when you wrote the book Okay, so we there's so many things you just said. I know. I'm just trying I know. to think, where do I where do I unpack this, from? <laughs> okay, so going that must have been really eye opening because you're looking at all of these different things. You're going to this institute, and it would have been like whiplash in your lifestyle based on where you came from, like how you acted, and then you were in this.
2: Industry. It was mind blowingly transformational. It really, really was.
1: And do you recommend that for people to be like, immerse yourself and go all in and just completely transform or is a more, a gentler approach easier for people?
2: Well, transform, you mean with eating?
1: Or any of it, like going from being completely unmindful to- Well, listen, this took
2: me 10 years, okay? This was not an overnight (laughs) sensation. I mean, I went to IIN in 2010. So, you know, it, it wasn't overnight- I, first I got diagnosed with the celiac and I had to eat gluten-free, right? So I had no choice. It wasn't even by choice. I mean, I had to learn and, and, and you know, start a whole new way of eating. But what I was realizing I was just substituting gluten-free foods that are packed with calories and no nutrition and all of that. So right. when I went to IIN, I was starting to slowly change my diet, which was gluten was already out of my diet. So you know, it, it happened gradually. And with the mindfulness, I'll tell you a quick story. I went to a mindfulness, so I decided I was going to study more mindfulness because I loved all of the concepts. It just made life so much easier, you know, than I was currently stressing about all little stupid things. And, you know, I just wasn't approaching life with this, um, you know, in this way. So I went, I I went to Omega Institute, which is in New York, very close by to me. And I was going to go on a retreat by myself and learn all these mindfulness techniques and stress reduction. And I'm a psychotherapist. So I had brought it back. I want to bring it back to my practice. So I go up there. I'd never meditated before. And we ended up meditating for 45 minutes you know, in the beginning of the retreat, and I did not know what was really happening, and it was torturous for me, because when you're in your own mind, and you don't really meditate, and all the thoughts are coming and going, you get to see how crazy you really are, and um, I was, thought I was going crazy, so after the, the meditation, the teacher had asked, you know, how was that for people, and all these people were raising their hands, saying how wonderful it was for them, and I thought they were all nuts. I raised my hand and I said, that was the most torture I've ever been through in my entire life. And I can't believe I signed up for five days of this. And I thought I was going to get thrown out. The man next to me said, whispered in my ear, and he's like, you're a rock star. And the woman, you know, the teacher said, how many other people are feeling like that? And a third of the people raised their hand. So you know, this this meditation took me a while to get into as well. And even after the five days, I was able to settle in and understand what meditation was, why you do it. It was hard for me to just do it without any sort of background or understanding. But then I sort of understood, and then I kind of got hooked, and then I did more programs. But it was definitely gradual over a period of time.
1: When uh, You know, it's interesting because when you just said about – the judgment and a third of the room was feeling the same way you were. Mm-hmm. I think people need to hear that because especially with meditation, I can't tell you the number of times my friends and I have had a conversation and, you know, I'm thinking of one of my dear friends in particular, and she's like, I just can't do it. My mind works so much. It's just mm. hyperdrive. And I'm like, that's the whole point. It's not about a judgment.
2: Mm-hmm. It's
1: about, just you know, the awareness, with just right. being with it. And right. I think people think that your your mind needs to go blank. And the truth is your mind rarely is blank. I mean, your mind can't technically really be blank.
2: Right. And that's what people say, that's the number one, you know, I can't meditate, my mind is so busy. And I say, well, that's like going to the gym and saying, I can't go to the gym, I'm out of shape. I mean, that's exactly what you're kind of saying because if your mind is so busy, that's, that you need this to balance. And it is, it's a very simple instruction, you know, focusing on your breath, your mind wanders, you come back to the breath, but it's very difficult to do because our minds are so busy. So if we could take five or 10 minutes and just balance out that chaotic monkey mind that we all experience um, and get a handle on our head, you know, it's, it's so beneficial in so many different ways.
1: Is it that when you start doing the meditation, does it tend to go throughout your life? Because I think I'm one of those people who I can meditate and I can be quiet. And then I, well, maybe I am over this now, but I used to do it. And then I'd catch myself in the middle of the day and I don't think I'd actually taken a deep breath yet. Mm -hmm. Right. Right. So now I'm like focusing, trying to do it mindfully all day long. Where does that habit come from? How do you bring that into all the time.
2: And how do you take it off the mat, as they say in yoga? Yeah. <laughs> yes, how do you take it off the mat? Great analogy. So my experience has been, you know, meditation is like muscle memory. So if you're practicing every day for 10 to 20 minutes, your body is getting you know experience in that state of mind in that calmness so the idea is if you practice regularly when you're in a stressful situation your body will be able to get there sooner you know if you remember like oh you know my breath and then you, it, it'll be second nature to you but it's like if you only meditate or breathe when you're experiencing stress you're not you not, you're not training you're not preparing for it so it's like exercise it's over time right that's how you get in shape it's not like if you exercise one day when you feel fat or whatever it's going to work you know it's it's very similar and the reps that you exercise for your brain is when your brain when your mind you know wanders and coming back and wanders and coming back that's the reps your mind has to wander so you can come back and build the reps to build the mindfulness muscle. And people don't really understand that. They think they're just supposed to be, oh, you know, and, and, and clear of mind. But you need to wander and come back. You wake up, oh, I'm thinking, come back. You wake up again, I'm thinking, come back. And it's sort of a tedious exercise, but it's exercise. It's not just supposed to be relaxing. It is a brain training exercise to help you become more mindful in your everyday life.
1: That's a great way to think of it
2: exercise. like I, I have a yeah. visual
1: now. I can see, okay, well, that shifts it a little bit. That's very yeah. powerful.
2: All right. It's a mental gymnasium, as I say in the book.
1: Yeah. <laughs> okay. So let's talk about the book because you wrote this book. Who is it for, first of all?
2: I initially wrote it for my clients. I was doing this mindfulness boot camp for them and I was recommending another book that went along with my boot camp. And I said, hey, this would be great if I had my own book to go along with my boot camp. So I started writing it for them, but it really is for people like me who wouldn't ordinarily come to spirituality or mindfulness and don't really know these concepts and aren't really interested in it because they think it's woo-woo and you know, the old stereotypical way of thinking about meditation. So I wanted to introduce it to women like me who wouldn't otherwise come to it. And I kind of, I I put, it's not a dense, really difficult to read book. It's a fun, easy to read, um, you know, way of looking at the world. It makes sense. It's not woo woo, it's just plain English. I use case examples, you know, from my practice. I use personal examples. And, and I explain it in a way that's hopefully, you know, entertaining and fun to read. So, you know, people are getting it without even realizing that they're studying Buddhism <laughs> <You know? laughs> or real, you know, or, or, or seeing Buddhist concepts. And I was also the mindful of the new skinny. I wanted to bring people in who are really struggling with their weight and that are discontent and, and teaching them a new way of thinking because it, it stinks to go through your whole life worrying about your weight and and how you look and it's like you're missing the big picture and on your deathbed you don't want to regret that you spent so much mental energy worrying about your weight
1: and it's interesting because when you think of your friends Mm -hmm. your interpretation of other people does not change based on their ten pounds or their twenty pounds of their right. the people you care about.
2: It just and matters yet, to them.
1: Yeah. Right. To and people. then yet yeah, we look at ourselves and we think I'm not lovable enough because I've got this extra extra weight. And I've I've done a lot of like, I mean, the whole work is around self-acceptance and self-awareness. And and so Mm -hmm. I'm very much at a point where I'm good no matter what weight I am. Mm -hmm. And I said that to a guy and uh, we were at a a conference and we were having a chit-chat about this. And he said, well, he said, I think you should revisit that. He's like, I think you'd, you'd have better luck getting a man if you weren't. So overweight, (gasps) yeah, and he said, and definitely it's not, it doesn't look very good on you that you're confident and overweight.
2: Oh my goodness, that is, I'm so sorry. Ah. That's horrible. You know what? I think confidence is sexy. I do too. I think there's so many skinny women who still are unhappy with their bodies and still put themselves down. And I think if you have a couple pounds on you and you're owning that and you're going out there and thinking you look great. That movie, the Amy Schumer movie. I Feel Pretty. Yeah. (laughs) I love that movie. And it came out right when the book was coming out. And I was, oh my God, this is exactly what I'm talking about. It's a mindset. When Amy Schumer thought she was gorgeous so she got a boyfriend. She got a great job. I mean, it really is your mindset. And for those people who are so judgmental about weight, you don't want to deal with them anyway. You don't want a boyfriend like that who's into you because of your size. You want someone that loves you.
1: Which speaks to a much deeper issue. Because if I, you know, the joke always now is if I could only be as quote unquote fat as I thought I was, or as I was the first time I said I was fat.
2: Yes, yes, (laughs) yes. Size two. Yes, Yes, I think that's in my book, that quote even. Oh, is it? Yeah, I think so. I wish I was as fat as I, you know, or. Whatever it is, thin Whatever as I it the is. first time I thought I was, about something like yeah. that, yes. Yeah. And
1: so yeah. that speaks to the dissatisfaction as a soul, as a human being, as opposed to a physical entity. I, I think that we are getting, uh, oh, the work you're doing is so important because the finding your way to acceptance, no matter what the shape of your body. Do you ever listen to Wayne Dyer?
2: Of course. Yeah, yes. of
1: course, right? Yes. And he, I was listening to one of his uh, old conversations, was it a podcast or a video or whatever it was, and he was saying, all the cells in our body are different. Mm-hmm. We're not the same human being as we were as a baby, as a teenager, as a 20-something, as a 40-something, as we'll be as an 80-something. And yet you're the same soul.
2: hmm Yes. We're always changing and we're always shedding and we're always, right, I don't have my 21-year-old body anymore,
1: you know? Right, and thank goodness, you probably, you know, too much work. I
2: don't know what it was. Right, (laughs) right, right. But I also think that what people don't understand with the weight when they're so hard on themselves and people look at overweight people like, oh, they must stuff their face and have an eating problem. It's like, we have a natural set point that our body wants to be at and we could fight it and we can deprive ourselves of calories and maybe we'll lose weight temporarily But as soon as we go back to a normal way of eating, our bodies are going to go back to where they want to be. So that's why I kind of say, you know, the reasons why, you know, I I give this out on my website, 10 reasons why you can't lose excess weight, because you know, we don't want to overeat and stress eat. And we definitely want to knock all that weight off our bodies and be healthy. But at some point, your body is where it wants to be. And if you're eating the right foods, and you're eating healthy, you know, just own it and and just be the, the, you know, my hips are never going to be, you know, thin, my butt has always been, you know, bigger than my what, you know, we have a genetic predisposition. And we have to kind of own that and just appreciate the fact. And love our bodies the way they are, you know, if we're healthy and we're not overeating and we're not emotional eating and stress eating.
1: And I will be sure to put the link to the 10 reasons you are not losing weight or could not be losing weight on the show notes. So I want to encourage listeners to go if it's something you're trying to figure out. Now, one of the things that happened for you and one of the things that happened for me was figuring out our allergies or figuring out what was not working in our body. So for you it was gluten. Mm-hmm. Early on, when mm-hmm. nobody knew what that is. Mm-hmm. Now everybody's on the gluten bandwagon. Yes. As a gluten, like a true celiac patient, does that ever make you roll your eyes? Do you kind of go, oh, people, it's not all gluten?
2: Well, it's funny. You know, when it started exploding, I was thrilled because it was wonderful. Now there was, then the demand went up and now there's so many more options right so i have you know i i used to bring food with me everywhere because i never knew where i was going to be able to eat but now i can travel and pretty much know that there'll be some gluten-free food for me wherever i go which is really unbelievable so as somebody who has gone through you know the early 2000s when there was nothing gluten-free and nobody knew what it was this is a really exciting time so for me the more people that are gluten-free the better <laughs> but, you know, because i'm just happy to have company and not be you know this odd person who is requesting gluten-free food the downfall of that is that these restaurants think you know oh she's just being trendy or they they roll their eyes and i do have a true you know, autoimmune disease. Um, So, you know, the cross-contamination may be an issue because they're like, oh, so I have to be very specific when I go to a restaurant and I say it's a gluten allergy because I don't want to go into like, I have a disease and, you know, the whole thing. But when you say allergy, I'm not doing this, you know, for trendy reasons, you know, they take you more seriously. But for people with celiac, they have to be very, very careful with cross-contamination, even if there's no gluten you know, in the food directly, if it shares the oil or if it's, you know, you take a hot dog off a bun, you can't, you can't do any of that. You can't use the same toaster. I mean, it's definitely, there's a lot of restrictions. Um, But I am happy that other people are doing it. I just hope they do it to be healthy and they're not just eating a ton of gluten-free junk food because that's not going to help them lose weight or be healthy.
1: I'm laughing because when it very first came out, like, so this is early, not before everybody knows what it is, whatever. I had read something probably in the very, very early stages. Like I don't know, whatever it was, 2009 it, when it started to get popular. when it went, I don't know what
2: Maybe, year. Which is, I don't even know. It doesn't matter. No, probably even later than that. I feel was like. it? Okay. Yeah. So this would have been
1: early enough. And right. I went through the grocery store because I'd read this article and I tried to find all these gluten-free products and they had just started coming out. Like I think there were bear claws or something that had gluten-free and all of these like, you know, rubber cardboard type things. Right, I never ate because like really when I go to the grocery store, I buy very healthy. I stick to the outside. It's all good. Mm
0: -hmm. And I get
1: up to the cash register and I am so proud that I explained to the cashier that I'm going to go gluten-free. And I think that that's going to be really healthy for me. And she just looks down on all my boxes and says, well, I think some people go gluten-free and they choose unhealthy foods. <laughs> she oh. said, not having gluten does not make it healthy food. And the irony was, I actually bought all this stuff that I would never buy. <laughs> like cookies right? Right. Right. and pasta and all this stuff. that was like,
2: I wouldn't normally eat, but because it was gluten-free, You know, in that article, it said, go gluten-free and you're going to lose weight. Right, right. It definitely, I would not recommend it as a weight loss, but, but some people do, you know, have gluten sensitivities and do much better without gluten. You know, our bodies are all different. So I recommend to people try going off gluten for a couple of months even and see like three months, I think is a good trial and see if... You notice anything different if there's any symptoms that lessen for you. Maybe it's bloating, maybe it's gas, maybe constipation, maybe you just stop having headaches. You know, it, it, gluten can cause so many different things. I mean, the irony for me is that I got diagnosed with celiac and I never had a stomach ache. I mean, I rarely have stomach upset. So I got diagnosed and I had no traditional symptoms. So it was very interesting because, but then when I got my bone density test, I had osteopenia. So I wasn't absorbing nutrients properly, but not in the traditional stomach you know, way that you would think. I mean, it's funny. My husband has a horrible stomach. He has no celiac disease or Crohn's or any of that. And, and I never, ever get a stomach ache. Even if I ate gluten, I wouldn't even feel it. You know, I don't have that type of celiac. There's different you know, symptoms that people experience. So if I ate gluten I wouldn't even know it but what it happens to me is that the villi don't absorb nutrients and that I sort of malabsorb so that's why I can't eat it but gluten has affects different people in different ways so if you you know if anybody listening is struggling with any type of symptom that a doctor can't seem to find the root of I would suggest you know trying it And then if it doesn't work, you don't need to be on a gluten-free diet, you know? Right.
1: Yay. (laughs) We were talking before we started on air uh, about taking the blood tests, Mm -hmm. which for you didn't work out. For me, it was so absolutely crystal clear. The irritant was dairy. And so I've eliminated that. And that's been really helpful in my my physical being, uh, specifically with inflammation. For Mm. you, it was almost like opposite of inconclusive.
2: Right, I don't think I got a conclusive. You were talking about the IgG test or the food sensitivity test.
1: Yeah.
2: Um, Yeah, for me, it was inconclusive. For some reason, it showed that, you know, I was sensitive to every food, which, you know, for somebody without stomach aches, it's still hard to believe for me. But that just meant that I think something else was kind of going on, which I'm still exploring. Because I do have some fatigue. I do have a chronic runny nose that I can't seem to find the cause for, which has been why I got tested for celiac in the first place because I had a runny nose. Um, You know, I thought I had a food allergy. So they tested me for food allergy and found that I had celiac disease, which turned out to have nothing to do with the runny nose but did save my life because. You know, who knows what would have happened to me if I never knew I had celiac and i had be needing gluten for all these years. I probably would have gotten very sick eventually. So the runny nose sort of saved me, but I still don't know the cause. So I'm always on this perpetual search to figure out. And if any listeners have any idea (laughs) what would cause a chronic runny nose, please write in or contact me in some way because I have not been able to figure it out. Have you tried eliminating dairy? I've, I've done an elimination diet yeah. and, you know, that didn't really help me at all. I just mm-hmm. don't feel like it's food because I have tried a lot of different things. So
1: chronic cyanitis, Sin, yes. or whatever. Yeah, it's like so, a
2: non-allergic chronic rhinitis. And I've been yeah. taking a spray, which has been helpful for 30 years, but who wants to be on a medication for that long? Right?
1: No, I probably not. Yeah, Most people, not I would guess. Okay. Right. Well, hopefully we have some uh, healthcare professionals yes, that are
2: listening right. and thinking, okay, ew, I know
1: Exactly, be it be this right. <laughs> Definitely
2: reach out to me. I'm open to exploring all possibilities. So,
1: absolutely. When you wrote your book, what was that experience like?
2: So, I thought it was going to be very easy because, like I mentioned, I was writing the boot camp. You know, I did the boot camp, I had all these outlines. I was going to write out all my outlines, make it a book, and it was going to be easy peasy. I was going to do this in a couple months. Yeah. So I, I wrote it all out in a couple months, like I planned, sent it to an editor, and she said to me, "Jody, this is great material, but it's not a book. And I was like, what do you mean it's not a book? So I had to go back and make it my own and come up with examples and come up with uh, steps and, you know, um, you know, at the end of each chapter, have like summaries. So anyway, three years later, I finally published it and um, it was not an easy process. And what ended up happening was, when we're on autopilot and we're not being mindful, we kind of get caught up in old programs. So I found myself becoming perfectionistic, judgmental, you know, uh, not balancing my home and work life, and beating myself up—all the things that I talk about in the book not to do. So I had this sort of epiphany, um, you know, that I was completely out of alignment with my brand and not doing what I practicing what I preached and Realized the irony of writing a book on stress and anxiety while experiencing so much stress and anxiety. So I put the book down for a little while and regrouped, worked on myself, and then came back to it with a completely different attitude. Because, like I said, when we're not mindful and paying attention, we can default into old programs that we're running. You know, I used to be all of those things. And when we're stressed out, you know, mindfulness is great and easy to do when life is, you know, going perfectly, but when the rubber hits the road and you're experiencing some stress, that's the real test. And I definitely got tested. It was like the energy of the book came alive while I was writing the book, which is kind of a cool thing. Right. So I was able to heal myself through the writings of the book and then using the book as a way, you know, we, it kind of complemented each other, which was a really incredible experience. And, um, Yeah, there's nothing like being able to heal yourself through your own writings. <laughs> it's like we, you know, we always teach what we need to learn, right? That's so right. it was yeah. a big lesson for me.
1: Constantly reminded to read my own book, as you are too,
2: right? It, it's, because it's it's hard. I'm very good at telling other people what to do and how to be, and you know, but when it comes to yourself, you really have to embody and integrate it in. I mean, sometimes I ask myself, what would I tell myself if I was a client right now? Because it's not always automatic. We're striving to make it automatic. But we're not perfect. We're not there yet. You know, it's a journey and I'm not, I'm not there yet. I'm, I'm struggling like everybody else. What do you find is
1: the hardest struggle now for you?
2: To not work so much. You oh, know, interesting. Okay. That work-life balance. I'm con- it's because I'm so passionate about what I do that I seem to always want to work on it, work on a new program, work on a, my speeches, work on, you know, there's so much to do. And especially now that you know, I I said I I kept saying, "When I write the book, then I'll have time for myself." But now that the book is done, now I have to promote the book. (laughs) You know, it just never ends. And finding that being able to put it on the side and say, "Now I'm going to do yoga," "Now I'm going to do my self care practices," "Now I'm going to do meditation," and making sure I have time for those things instead of being usurped by you know work. So that's the thing I'm struggling with the most now. But I'm really scheduling in self-care time. That's the only way that I can get it done.
1: Some would say that when you love your work, self-care is doing your work.
2: That's what that's what I'm going with. But yeah, you could totally <laughs> justify it. I'm <laughs> right. just I'm just off. I'm going space. with that. <laughs> yes, I do love my work, and I'm so grateful and blessed right. about that. But I also love my family, and I also love my, you know, yoga practice, and I also love riding my bicycle and playing tennis, and I don't want to lose sight of those things. I don't want an imbalanced life. I mean, I couldn't ask for a better job, and I'm so grateful and lucky, but I can get caught up if I'm not mindful. So that's where the mindfulness sort of comes in, noticing when I'm caught up in a, you know, work storm and taking, you know, a step back and balancing myself.
1: And what's your trigger for you to say, "Oh, check, reset, get back to mindful. Is there a moment or a feeling or a sensation that's your trigger to get you there?
2: I'm ex- I get exhausted <laughs> you know, when I, I you know I, I kind of check in with my body per- periodically throughout the day, and you know, Am I exhausted? Am I depleted? Do I feel like I need some self-care right now? What am I doing today? You know, there's some days I'll sit at my desk and I don't get up and my legs start, you know, cramping. So that's a sign. You know, I I sort of listen to my body and that's also been a struggle because we live in our heads. I'm trying to listen to my body more, listen to my, you know, aches and pains, my intuitions, my, you know, stress, my tension. And, and, and use my body to guide me. So that's what I'm working on now. And I, I feel, you know, and plus my husband's like, Jody, you're working too much. And, and I sort of, instead of dismissing him like, oh, leave me alone, I'm like, okay, you're right. And I talk about that in one of the chapters in the book. Like if we can listen to other people's criticisms of us and not be so defensive with our ego, then we're able to really write our course you know, change direction, but we're usually so defensive when somebody says something to us. No, I don't, you know, and it, it, our ego defenses are so high, but if we can listen to what somebody else is telling us, they're like a mirror for us. And it may not all be true, but I'm sure there's a shred of truth in, within that. So, you know, listening to my, my husband or my sons or, you know, whatever, I, I'm, I'm trying to really take in that feedback.
1: Fair enough. And I think by choosing whose feedback you're going to take in
2: right. is very and, and wise. Right. where it's coming from and, and what it is. I mean, if it's hurtful and mean, you know, it's different from, you know, Jody. I, I think you're working too much. <laughs> you know what I mean? So yes, I'm not saying we should take abuse and, and kind of, you know, uh, incorporate that. But from people that you know, love and care about you, if they say something to you, you know, it's wise to kind of listen to that without... Without your defenses going up.
1: You come across as so confident, I gotta tell you, right? Like, you know, you know what you're doing, you've got this mission, you're achieving this. Are there any moments of doubt along the way?
2: <laughs> yes, constantly. I mean, sometimes I wake up, I'm like, what am I doing? It, it, you know, is, am I, uh, of course, we all have that voice in the back of our heads. Am I good enough? Can I do this? Why are people listening to me? You know, it, it comes up. And then I just don't pay attention to it. So, you know, we're always going to have these thoughts that we're programmed to have, but it's the way we relate to the thoughts that make the difference. So, if I let those thoughts run me, I'm never going to be able to accomplish what I need to accomplish. But what I'm doing now is I'm making friends with imperfection. So, you know, my first book talk, I, I joke around about this, the first book talk I've ever done. It was at a a local bookstore in Chappaqua, New York, where, you know, the Clintons live here. And and literally the night before I gave my book talk, Bill Clinton and James Patterson were at the same bookstore giving their talk the night before filming, you know, for CBS News. This was a couple of months ago. So I come in the next day, the bookstore is like topsy-turvy. It's called Scattered Books. And it was literally Scattered Books that day. She put me in the back room with, um, you know, in the children's area, and you know there was a train table, and there were bunny rabbits and cages, and there was toys, and I was like, this is fine, no problem. And during the meditation, the bunnies got out of the cage and started, you know, <laughs> running around, and people were like, oh my god, oh my god, oh my god, it was completely distracting, and um, I was kind of like, oh my god, and. And then I realized, you know what? This is all about being with distraction, being with imperfection. So I was able to use it in my talk. But right now, as I start speaking more and going out more, I have to be friends with this imperfection. Because if I'm not, it's just going to stop me in the track. So I know I'm not perfect. I know not everything is going to go well. And I just have to embrace that, which is again, what I talk about in the book, embracing imperfection, because nothing is going to be perfect. Um, You know, I always joke, I'm like, I bet the bunnies were locked up for Bill Clinton's talk, you know, (laughs) like I bet they were in the cages for that. But um, yeah, so it's all about imperfection. And And just being okay with if I do make a mistake or if I do, you know, mess up somewhere and, and not everybody's going to like me. I have this little chapter in the book. I'm not for everybody. (laughs) So not everybody's going to like me. Not everybody's going to resonate with my message and that's okay. I just have to keep on going. So, and doing, you know, doing what I feel is authentic and truthful and real.
1: Fantastic. Well, thanks so much for being here. And I will be sure that there are links to Jody's information in the show notes. And her book is called Mindful is the New Skinny. It's available on Amazon. And don't forget that she has a free giveaway for our listeners, 10 Reasons Why you can't lose excess weight. So that is available at jodybarretts.com and uh, you can find her even in the Huffington Post. There's a mindfulness app, Westchester Magazine. There's a whole bunch of places where you can find more from Jody. Just su- such great insights. And of course, if you love this, please share it with someone who needs to hear this and subscribe, like, do whatever it is that you want to do to help us spread the Resiliency Ninja message. So until next time, uh, embrace those obstacles because you know they are going to make you stronger.
0: Thank you for tuning in to Resiliency Ninja with Allison Graham. We are thrilled to have you as part of our community. If you enjoyed the show, please rate and recommend it on iTunes, Overcast, or wherever you get your podcasts. You can always connect with Allison at r-ninja.com and find important links to show notes. Thanks for listening. Until next time, embrace whatever obstacles come your way.